0: chapter 22 of the women who make our novels this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by jennifer dor the women who make our novels by grant overton chapter 22 clara louise burnham to write 26 books is something is it not to have written 26 books which have sold half a million copies the publishers offhand guess is something else again and more clara louise burnham has done that and the cold arithmetical statement does not begin to convey the real nature of her achievement you must read her to know how capable a novelist she is how expert how gifted with humour insight fertility in those slight inventions which make up the reality of a fictionist's whole mrs burnham's writings are associated in the minds of many thousands who have not read her tales or have read only a few of them with the doctrines of christian science and it is true that she is the author of several novels in which the principles of this faith are of the essence of the stories equally true is it that she has said of her book jewel i like jewel best i think she is my high water mark it is a christian science book and without the christian science terminology that is used in the story it well it would be kind of second little lord fauntleroy and besides it wouldn't be jewel which may be so, but which does not hold true of the right princess. There, the identification of Francis Rogers' beliefs, with the faith of which Mrs. Eddy was the founder, is not indispensable to the narrative. Miss Rogers need not have been a scientist. We should still have an unusual and effectively told story, a novel quite as entertaining and worth the reader's while as the opened shutters, from which the terminology of the scientist is entirely absent. The point we would make, then, the point that ought in sheer honesty to be made at the very outset of any consideration of mrs burnham's work is her genuine and incontestable achievement as a straightway out-and-out talented storyteller, a pure and simple fictioneer an experienced and popular american novelist that some of her novels have probably done more to put christian science precepts before the world in what the scientist believes to be the true light than anything ever written other than the church's texts that this is so may be granted, but it is not a fact we have to concern ourselves with here. We concede it and pass on. We pass on in either direction, going back to the fourteen books which preceded the right princess, or forward to the eight novels which have appeared since The Leaven of Love. They are the bulk of Mrs. Burnham's work, and yet it is to be feared we shall have to bestow most of our attention upon the six books between— they represent mrs burnham's widest popularity and what is possibly her best work judged strictly in literary aspects but enough of this for the present it is time enough to cross bridges when we come to them let us first get a glimpse of mrs burnham herself a tall woman spare and build with light hair blue eyes and a merry manner a conversationalist with anecdotes a manner of great simplicity serenity calm pleasantness she was the eldest daughter of george f root as popular a songwriter as this country has produced. Born in Newton, Massachusetts, she has lived most of her life in Chicago. She summers in Maine. Her education was in the public and in private schools in Chicago, and at the new church school, Waltham, Massachusetts. Politically, she is, or was, a progressive, and at this point we cannot do better than to quote her own words in the Chicago Record Herald of November 24, 1912 people who see the large sunshiny hotel room in which i work whose bay windows command a wide expanse of lake say that they no longer wonder at the good cheer of my stories if i ever had the blues i should believe in the water cure i have always believed in the ounce of prevention indeed i try it all summer up in maine bailey island my summer home is only a small green hill in the superb sweep of the atlantic my cottage stands eighty feet above the sea and there is nothing but water between me and Europe. "'It is great fun for a woman who usually lives at a hotel "'to keep house three months of the year. "'But Bailey Island is not an inspiring place. "'I never work in summer. "'My father always told me to let the water in the reservoir fill up then. "'Besides, a brick wall is all the view I want when I'm at work. "'Even this dear Lake Michigan is almost too distracting at times. "'Lake Michigan explains why I have not followed the tide "'of successful writers to New York. "'I love Chicago.' with all its soot and wind. I am naturally optimistic and therefore expect that within the next decade the Illinois Central will be electrified. Then won't this spot be a winter paradise? Nevertheless, it is tempting to use my island as a background for my stories. In the inner flame, I have gone back to it again. Besides, the Villa Chanticleer is a real place, a hen-house cleared and renovated by an enthusiastic young artist and given that clever name. The Chanticleer studio was too picturesque an incident not to become material. However, very little of my material is taken from real life. It is playing with fire to draw recognizable portraits of people, but I fancy nearly all authors are quite aware that they are making composite pictures of friends or acquaintances. For instance, the man who inspired the character of Philip Sidney, the hero of the inner flame, is a brother-in-law of John McCutcheon. While Edgar Fabian's personality and mannerisms... Are copied faithfully from another one of my friends whose character is as different from Edgar's as can be imagined. It is very seldom that any individual appeals to me as material, but when he or she does, I generally fall. Inasmuch as in all my books there is not one villain, I should not think they would mind. I have been asked whether I have a method in writing. I have necessarily. Genius has inspirations, it writes in the night or walking in the field and burns cords of cigarettes. Mere talent must be persistent and industrious, and can often forego cigarettes. When I was a very young girl, I read something Miss Mullock said apropos of writing which made a deep impression. It was this. An author should go to his desk as regularly as a carpenter to his bench, and with as little thought of inspiration, I point to my twenty novels as a proof that I have heeded that direction." for if anyone doubts the manual labor of book-writing, let him pick up any story and copy a chapter from it in longhand. I have averaged one novel a year, yet my maximum period of daily work is three morning hours. If a young person aspiring to print should ask me whether there is a definite way to begin, I should tell him to start by catching a big brother. Preferably his own, for anyone else's might be a hindrance. Mine is Frederick W. Root, ex-president of the Literary Club, cliff-dweller, little rumor, and in many other respects, an orthodox Chicagoan. He has been my mascot ever since the day when he started on the labor, and hard labor it was, of drawing a young sister away from the music, which was her chief interest, and starting her at story-writing. You know I am one of the Roots. My father, George F. Root, was known chiefly by his war songs, Tramp, 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 and the battle cry of freedom, and so on. But every home in the land knows his simple, melodious songs, and I should like to feel that the vitality in my unpretentious stories is akin to the spontaneous harmony that flowed for fifty happy years from his clear mind. I suppose the reason I did not wish to write was that music satisfied me. My brother persisted against my indifference for a year. At last we were both exasperated. He shut me into a room with him one day, and opening a very businesslike-looking knife— "'declared with a fearful scowl "'that I should not leave that room alive "'unless I promised to try faithfully to write a story. "'I laughed a little and wept a little, "'and at last promised to show him that I couldn't do it. "'Someone asked him once in my presence "'why he was so certain that I could write. "'He replied, "'Oh, she has a picturesque way of telling things "'and isn't too much hampered by the truth. "'I forgive him even such aspersions. "'He is an example of what a heart at leisure from itself "'can do for another.' I owe him everything, above all the blessed assurance which sometimes reaches me that my stories help others. It is wonderful that I met no obstacles in starting. With no conscious preparation I was like a ship ready to be launched. Fred pushed me off into deep water. I enjoy my work, but not quite in the carefree way I used to enjoy it. With each new book now I am conscious of some anxiety not to disappoint my large parish, not to go backward. Both in books and plays I believe the destructive is doomed." In this world there exists only one rose without a thorn. There are many larger, more alluring, more fragrant, but there is only one thornless rose. It is work that you love. Mrs. Burnham rather minimizes the difficulties of getting started. Her first stories were unfavorably passed upon, but the verdicts did not deter her. A poem sent to Wide Awake was her first accepted work. No Gentleman was her first novel. It should be stated that her mother also was musically gifted. Though born in Newton, Massachusetts, the girl lived for some years in North Reading, Massachusetts. She was nine when the family went to Chicago to live. She was married young, and it was after her marriage that her brother induced her to write. She is a member of the Little Room Club of Chicago, and lives there at the Elms Hotel. Her first play, or rather the first play made from one of her books, was The Right Princess, and when after the usual hitches it was staged smoothly at the alcazar theatre in san francisco late in nineteen twelve mrs burnham confessed to the dramatist's deepest thrill i will not act the doting parent except to say that after so many years of seeing one's characters in black and white on the printed page you can't imagine how fascinating it is to watch them move about in the flesh your own creations speaking your own lines and then my first my very first villain lives in that little play. To get to Bailey Island, Mrs. Burnham's summer home in Maine, you go first to Portland, where the author is as widely and favorably known as if she had lived there all her life. It is, in fact, almost a quarter of a century since she began spending her summers in Maine. She has failed to show up, but rarely since 1894, although she did spend two summers abroad and one visiting Yellowstone Park. "'I only spared a summer to go to Yellowstone "'because it was open only in summer,' she explained afterward. "'Her Bailey Island house, a roomy, shingled structure, "'stands on a steep, shelving headland, "'not rocky, but covered with grass "'and with a pebbled beach at its foot. "'It is called the Mooring. "'Beside it stands her brother's house, "'of the same character, but a little larger. "'The view is over the Atlantic and Casco Bay, "'and you may see the White Mountains clearly.' The story of how Mrs. Burnham came to live there is related with changes of names. In her novel, Dr. Latimer, the old Tide Mill, which figures so importantly in the opened shutters, was a real mill which, two years after the novel's appearance in 1906, sank into the sea. Do you remember this passage in the last chapter of The Open Shutters?" She paused, her lips apart, her eyes wide. For all at once she caught sight of the Tide Mill. Every one of its shutters had turned back. The sunlight was flooding in. She grew pale, sank down upon a rock nearby, and gazed. And then a few pages later, John Dunham's words to Sylvia Lacey. You said love would open the shutters, and it has. The incident is charged with a special significance in the story. It appears that when the real mill disappeared, a coincidence was noted, the sort of thing that many persons prefer to think no coincidence at all. We quote from the Portland Evening Express of July thirty-first, nineteen 1909. It seems that one day last summer Captain Morrill of the Harpswell Steamboat Company, who is not too fond of story-reading, picked up the open shutters to read. His wife, in telling about it to Mrs. Burnham, said that he read the story far into the night. Not being willing to put it down till he had read the last word, the next day when he was sailing down the bay, his attention was suddenly directed to the old tide-mill. He looked at it long and steadily. Could it be? Were his eyes deceiving him? Had he read so late and thought so deeply on the story that things did not look quite natural to him? He looked at the old mill again. Yes, it was sinking into the sea, and the shutters were wide open. The sun, too, was shining through. For years these old shutters had not let in a rift of light. But now they were flood with it those who do not hug the supernatural are at liberty to suppose that the strain of settling and sinking unbarred and flung open the shutters of captain moral it may be noted that his presence of mind and bravery several years earlier had saved the lives of mrs burnham and other passengers in a collision between the steamboat Sebaskadegan, and a revenue cutter but for him the open shutters would never have been written THE BEGINNING OF THIS CAPITAL STORY WAS NOT WITH THE TIDE-MILL, HOWEVER, BUT WITH THE NAME THINK-RIGHT-JOHNSON. LIKE CERTAIN PERSONS WHOSE APPEARANCE BEFORE MRS. BURNHAM'S MIND'S EYE HAS COMPELLED HER TO WRITE ABOUT THEM, THIS NEW ENGLANDISH APPELLATION GAVE BIRTH TO A BOOK, THINK-RIGHT-JOHNSON. THINK-RIGHT-JOHNSON, THE NAME HAUNTED MRS. BURNHAM FOR DAYS AND WEEKS, TILL I KNEW THAT THE ONLY WAY I COULD HAVE ANY PIECE WAS TO WRITE SOMETHING ABOUT HIM. IT WAS THE SAME WAY WITH JEWEL. SHE KEPT COMING BEFORE HER AUTHOR. She is the exact type of one of my little nieces in character, looks, and even to the things that she says. In some way I felt compelled to write about her. On the other hand, the story of the right princess came to Mrs. Burnham one evening when she was all dressed for the theatre. As I stood in my room, all ready to go, it began to come to me. I drew off one of my gloves and sat down to my desk, just to jot down a few of the ideas but the whole thing grew so rapidly in my mind that i did not realize anything in the world about me again till i found myself removing one of my shoes many hours later the book was practically conceived and written in a single night but ordinarily i just live with my characters after they have come to me of course it is usually the leading character of a story that occurs to me first and then i let him or her gather about them the characters which they would naturally know or come in contact with then i just let them say the things which they would naturally say to each other Of course, I accept and reject what my characters shall say in print, coordinating and assorting it into the plot. But they develop the plot. My hours are from nine to twelve in the morning. Whatever I write comes to me perfectly easily and naturally, and I rarely ever make any changes in my first copy. My mother used to say that I wrote just as other people hemmed handkerchiefs. Writing has never meant any struggle whatever to me. Stories are to entertain, and they cannot do this if they are unhappy and then all my early stories I used to read to my father. And he particularly disliked anything that was unhappy in them and urged me to take it out. Among Mrs. Burnham's close friends are the brothers George Barr McCutcheon, the novelist, and John McCutcheon, the cartoonist, and George Ade. Charles Klein, the playwright, was a personal friend also. It is improper to use the word trilogy in speaking of Mrs. Burnham's Christian science novels, since a trilogy, rightly speaking, is a group of three novels in which one or more characters persist, or which have a common setting. If we can speak of a trilogy based on an idea or set of ideas, then Mrs. Burnham's Christian Science trilogy consists of The Right Princess, 1902, Jewel, 1903, and The Leaven of Love, 1908. The Open Shutter, 1906, is free from the special terminology of the scientists, though saturated with their principles and beliefs in the character of thinkwright johnson and later of sylvia lacey hearts haven nineteen eighteen is mrs burnham's account of may Killeen, a village beauty who as between two lovers kept faith with the one to whom she had betrothed herself her son marries a girl of no breeding and is saved from disaster by his mother's rejected lover whose story he does not know may colleen herself is later the means of restoring her son's fortunes There is a double love story very pleasantly told and very happily worked out though with the leaven of love mrs burnham has given over writing christian science novels the underlying ideas of her work which were there before she wrote the right princess which were there when she wrote dr latimer remain unaltered and always expressed these ideas are those of peaceful and happy existences of the validity of mental experiences of the influence of intellectual environment thus as lately as nineteen sixteen in instead of the thorn she gives us the story of a chicago girl brought up in luxury whose father is ruined in circumstances that seem to her to involve his business associate the fact that this young man is in love with the girl sets up the complication or struggle necessary to make a novel the girl is finally persuaded to go to new england for rest And Mrs. Burnham directs the reader's attention less to the solution of certain external problems than to the way in which simple, quiet village life restores the heroine's mental poise and happiness. As for the proof that Mrs. Burnham's faith was antecedent to the first of her Christian science novels, what clearer evidence need be asked than Helen Iveson's characterization of Dr. Latimer in the story, Dr. Latimer? The secret of his influence over people is only that absolute trust in God which he has learned somehow in life's school. He puts self out of the way more than any one we ever knew, and so a power shines through him which is not of the world. And people, when they come near him, feel all that is morally best in them being drawn forward, and are conscious of crowding out of sight all that they would be ashamed to have come to his notice. Nothing better illustrates the quality of Mrs. Burnham's humour, a humour that makes her stories palatable reading, even where the reader disagrees violently with the ideas set forth. Then the chapters in Jewel, where Jewel is suffering from what those about her agree to be fever and sore throat, Doctor Ballard has prepared medicine and a glass of water. Jewel is to take a couple of spoonfuls of the water to satisfy Mrs. Forbes. Instead, she drinks heavily from an unmedicated pitcherful. By evening, she is much better. Then does the doctor, who thinks he has tricked Jewel by persuading her to trick the housekeeper, learn that he has been fooled instead? Didn't you drink any of the water? Asked Doctor Ballard at last. "'Yes, out of the pitcher.' "'Why not out of the glass?' "'It didn't look like enough. I was so thirsty.' Mr. Everingham finally found voice. Jewel, why didn't you obey the doctor?' Jewel thought a minute. "'He said it wasn't medicine, so what was the use?' she asked. Mr. Everingham, seeming to find an answer to this difficult, bit the end of his moustache. "'Equally amusing,' Equally good as humor is Jewel's behavior with respect to the overshoes which she is ordered to wear. At first she wears them regardless. Then she is told to wear them only when it rains. A rainy day dawns. Grandfather Everingham comes downstairs in bad humor. Beastly weather! Jewel inquires. But the flowers and trees want a drink, don't they? Mm, I suppose so. And the brook will be prettier than ever. Mm. See that you keep out of it. "'Yes, I will, Grandpa, and I thought the first thing this morning "'I'll wear my rubbers all day. "'I was so afraid I might forget, I put them right out to make sure. "'Recovering shortly, Mr. Everingham observes, "'The house doesn't leak anywhere. "'I think it will be safe for you to take them off until after breakfast. "'Now this is excellent humorous writing, "'and Mrs. Burnham's novels are filled with it, "'even her Christian science novels, perhaps those particularly. "'It is so good simply because she has most thoroughly "'assimilated her material before starting to write.' how many writers more famous than she more gifted possibly from a critical standpoint would have made a sorry failure of such books as jewel and the right princess we don't care to think but you may see the disaster any day in the case of writers like winston churchill engrossed by certain political and ethical ideals and ernest poole whose fine novel the harbour failed of the highest rank simply because he had not assimilated the sociological ideas which he wished to present through his characters It is continually happening this effort of the good artist to handle material he has not mastered and as surely as he essays the task he leaves his place as a novelist to mount the pulpit of the preacher the rostrum of the reformer the soapbox of the agitator and a fine story is spoiled beyond all salvaging but when mrs burnham writes of christian science beliefs ideas and mental attitudes she is not writing primarily to lay those things before the reader she is writing to tell a story These are the elements of her story. From them she weaves her web of fancy, but they are the colors and not the pattern. In the depiction of character, notably the strongly accentuated characters of New England, Mrs. Burnham is unfailingly and admirably successful. The open shutters lends itself from the start to the happy illustration of this faculty. Who more accurately observed and justly reported than Miss Lacey, Judge Trent, and John Dunham? Miss Lacey meets the judge's housekeeper, Old Hannah, and exclaims, "'I just met Judge Trent, Hannah. "'Dear me, can't you brush that hat of his a little? "'It looks for all the world like a black cat "'that has just caught sight of a mastiff.' Martha Lacey's attitude towards Judge Trent is summed up in the refrain continually sounding at the back of her head. "'If I'd married him, he would have done so-and-so "'or wouldn't have done something else. "'No two ways about that. "'The consciousness of this stern and immutable fact "'is what makes Judge Trent's life "'one long sensation of relief at having been refused.' the judge softly closed the door behind her there but for the grace of God he murmured devoutly goes mrs. Calvin Trent then he returned to his desk put on his hat and sat down at his work plots there are hundreds of writers who can build twenty-story plots with express elevator service and private subway stations there aren't so many who can see people clearly and see them whole and set them down brightly on paper Mrs. Burnham's novels will be widely read and enjoyed for so long as she writes them, and afterward for many a day. Books by Clara Louise Burnham The Quest Flower Flutterfly The Golden Dog No Gentleman, 1882 A Sane Lunatic, 1883 Dearly Bought, 1884 Next Door, 1885 Young Maids and Old, 1886 The Mistress of Beech Knoll, 1887 Miss Baggs' Secretary, 1892, Dr. Latimer, 1893, Miss Archer Archer, 1894, Sweet Clover, A Romance of the White City, 1894, The Wise Woman, 1895, A Great Love, 1898, A West Point Wooing and Other Stories, 1899, Miss Pritchard's Wedding Trip, 1901, The Right Princess, 1902, Jewel, A Chapter in Her Life, 1903, Jewel's Storybook, 1904, The Open Shutters, 1906, The Right Track, 1914, Instead of the Thorn, 1916, Hart's Haven, 1918. All of Mrs. Burnham's books are published by Houghton Mifflin Company, Boston. End of Chapter 22